as always, it's good to be with you, good to worship God together. Really, I haven't, I don't think we've sung that first song that we sang this morning in a while, and that's one of my favorites. I really do like that one, and I think it is a good way to begin worship service to praise God's name, and so appreciate that being led. Appreciate those who are visiting with us. I don't think we have many, but we do have a couple, and appreciate your presence here. We ask that you... Uh, Stick around for a few minutes afterwards. Just let us talk to you a little bit and uh, invite you back anytime that you're able. Acts chapter 20. I want to begin by reading just a few verses here, and it's a very familiar passage to you all. I know it is, so we'll, we'll start right up in, in the midst of what is a conversation between Paul, the Apostle Paul, and elders from Ephesus. And as he's trying to instruct them about how they need really to be prepared. And for very, something specific, as he talks about what Jesus would term as wolves in sheep's clothing, in Acts chapter 20, in verse 28, it says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years I did not cease to admonish, uh, cease to admonish each one with tears. And this is, in the, again, in the middle of some instructions that he gives, but I want to focus specifically on what he says about those wolves uh, in sheep's clothing. He says that there will be savage wolves who, who will arise not just from, from the outer banks, but within from among you, within your own church, within your own congregation. And he says that they need to watch out against them in, in, in you know, kind of the opposite side of that, therefore protecting the sheep. What is the way that they are to protect the sheep? You watch out and you make sure that you keep the wolves away. And you make sure that you root them out, among many other things. But this is one of the main things that I think he, he is trying to instruct of them. And this is something that, that I think we all understand very, very clearly. It's not... This isn't one of those commands that's like, I, I don't know exactly how we're supposed to take this. No, we understand. You, you keep them away and you get rid of them as, as much as possible. But even when it comes to savage wolves, what is, what is false teachers uh, within, that, that will rise up within our ranks, even when it comes to false teachers, people that, that as you see in the picture there, are, are deceptive and are trying to hurt the church of God, trying to hurt brethren. Even with these people, sometimes you hear people give excuses for this kind of behavior. And there are many excuses that people give often. You know, sometimes people say, you just, you can't know their heart. And so what do they mean by that? Well, you know, maybe they've been acting not right, but you don't know their heart. Or maybe someone says, well, we can't start judging now. I mean, we're not supposed to be people that judge others, and we need to be as loving and compassionate as we can. And so, yes... <laughs> they're acting the way Paul says that you need to be wary of, but you, you, we don't want to start judging. Or maybe someone says, he's, listen, that's just how he is. He's eccentric. He's kind of an oddball. He's just always been like that. Or one of the main excuses that people give is he's family. She's a friend. How can I, how, how, I mean, can't we be just a, a little bit more patient? Can't we give them just a little bit more time? And there are several others. One of the main ones, uh, again, that I think people say often is they've, they've got a soul too, just like you and me. 
And we're going to talk about uh, these excuses a little bit more as we go throughout. But the list could go on and on. But what I think has happened is, is they may not realize what they are doing. But ultimately what they are doing is they, as they say these things, as they give these excuses, they are really defending the savage wolves. Instead of defending and, and protecting the innocent sheep, they're putting them at risk by defending, excusing the behavior of the savage wolves. And again, I'm not saying that people realize this as they make these kinds of excuses, as they say these things, but frankly, that's just, that's just how it is. When we try to give that kind of reasoning and when we try to reason away this kind of behavior and this kind of person, even in the church, that's a problem. We're defending those that are attacking God's people instead of defending the innocent sheep and the flock. And so we'll go through a few different points as we try to distinguish what these people look like, how these people behave, what kind of attitude these kind of people have because, frankly, they are very subtle. As it says, they are wolves in sheep's clothing. They're trying to disguise themselves and they're trying to be subtle because they don't want to be identified. And so... You know, this is just, it's completely backwards. From the very beginning, Jesus to Paul says, you need, you need to be on the offense when it comes to these kinds of people. But what it has become on a great scale is instead of being on the offense, we're constantly on the defense and constantly trying to figure out ways to keep these kinds of individuals among us. And so we need to be prepared for that. So what are we to do? First of all, in Matthew chapter 7, Matthew chapter 7 in verse 15 beginning. Matthew chapter 7 in verse 15. Here Jesus starts giving us an illustration to help us identify these kinds of false teachers. Matthew chapter 7 in verse 15. It says, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but, he, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. And so what are we to do as, as we see this command to watch out for, for these, these kind of false prophets, these false teachers, these wolves in sheep's clothing? We are supposed to be identifying them. And, and from Acts chapter 20 to Matthew chapter 7, I think that's, this is very clear. And, and when Jesus is saying this, I don't think Jesus is trying to give like a cute analogy. Oh, this is going to be an interesting illustration. People are really going to pick this up. People are really going to just, just eat this up. I don't think that's what he's doing. I think what he's doing is trying to get us to clearly understand that I want you to be able to point these kind of individuals out. Not only should you, but you must be able to point these kinds of individuals out. Over in 1 Timothy chapter 4. Another very familiar verse, but 1 Timothy chapter 4 in verse 1, stressing the fact that this is commanded over and over again. It says, but the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. By means of the hypocrisy of liars seared into their own conscience as with a branding iron, men who forbid marriage and advocate uh, abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. And, you know, he, it, we're going to look at even more descriptions that, that especially Paul will give about these kinds of individuals. But just understand that this isn't something, as we already began with, that, that Jesus says, I hope that you will be able to, to note these kinds of individuals. He says, you better. 
This is a commandment of God's people. Nobody gets to say, well, that's for, that's for the other people in the congregation. That's for the elders, or that's for the deacons, or that's for this man or that woman. No, this is everyone's responsibility. Turn over to 2 John. 2 John, there's only one chapter, but 2 John beginning in verse 9. John writing to Christians says, Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. The one who abides in the teaching, he has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting. For the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. That's very serious language there. You don't participate in those deeds. How? You don't even invite him in. Because he is engaging in, in the kind of false spirit, the kind of false teaching that we've been reading about throughout, all throughout the New Testament. And so no matter who we are, we have a responsibility in this regardless. And so, you know, I, I understand that we don't have, have elders or deacons here. But maybe, maybe it would be easy to say, well, that responsibility, it lies predominantly on the preacher to practice. That's not for me. That's not true. It is for the preacher, but it's just as much for everyone else in the congregation as it is the preacher to identify and to rebuke and to push against and refute false doctrines that may arise regardless from where it does the requirement is as you see in second john is not you know who, who is he writing to but he's writing to christians and so anyone who comes to your door that makes it very personal application it's you and so that could be someone, you know, in, in, in the home. That could be someone in the church. That could, it, it's whoever is among you. This is who the commandment is for. If it is among you, then it is your job. You don't get to look around and say, why isn't anyone doing anything? Why aren't you doing anything? It's not my problem. It very much is. And so certainly you don't get to excuse that kind of, you don't get to excuse yourself from identifying and noting those individuals by excusing them, which we'll come back to later on. But this is our responsibility. That's what we are to do. You're supposed to identify them, and we're supposed to be refuting that kind of behavior and doctrine. Now, we come to the question of how are we supposed to identify these kinds of men? And, and even here, I think this is very important because... They are very subtle, and they're trying to look the part. They're trying to blend in with everybody. And so we have got to be able to look past that, that, that facade of, of piety and, and that facade of, of holiness, and we need to look and see what kind of person is this who is bringing these kinds of words, who's, who's acting this out. And so there's three things that I want to look at in how we distinguish false teachers. And the first is very simply by their words. Over in Galatians chapter 1, Galatians chapter 1, beginning in verse 6. Galatians 1 in verse 6. <clears throat> Galatians is a very, is a very just, just it, it's, it's filled with very strong language from Paul. It, it, a lot of his letters kind of begin with, you know, 10, 15 verses of, oh, I, I miss you guys and I look back on you fondly. But almost immediately, he has to start with, what is going on here? In verse 6, I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. Which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. 
So once more, very strong language. He says, accursed, anathema. That person is to be counted as, as kind of like what we looked at in 2 John verses 9 through 11. You don't accept them in. And you don't treat them the same as the rest of your brethren who are actually being faithful, who are actually looking after the gospel of Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, in verse 4, Paul says something kind of similarly as he says, if someone tries to bring to you another gospel, which you did not receive from us, if someone tries to bring to you another Christ, which you did not receive from us, you bear this beautifully. How? By rejecting it. And so if it, if it falls outside the gospel at all, it's pretty clear that, that this is not, uh, that this is someone who is preaching, obviously, not Christ, not the gospel. But, but even there, sometimes, even though words can be so incredibly con condemning, you still hear those excuses we start with at the beginning. Well, I, maybe that's not what they meant. Well, we have, to, we, we have got to get past this, this notion of, well, we have to be so careful and so cautious that, that we don't go too far. We're not talking about someone like Apollos who was mistaken in his teaching and immediately repented of that, that misinformation there as he was preaching uh, you know, about the, the, the baptism of John and things like that because that's all he knew. When Priscilla and Aquila went to him, he immediately repented and he immediately started preaching the, the one true gospel. And, and he corrected that. This is not the kind of person we're talking about. We're talking about the person who continues in this. So look over at 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. You might put a bookmark here because we'll be going back and forth between these, these three letters that Paul writes to uh, these evangelists. But in 1 Timothy chapter 6, in verse 3, how do we know? Because even sometimes when people are, are, are speaking to you, it, their, their language is veiled or it can be veiled. And so he says, all who are, uh, beginning in verse 3, if anyone advocates a different doctrine, and what is doctrine but teaching? If anyone advocates a different doctrine or teaching and does not agree with the sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing, but he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. And so even in this passage, you have a, a kind of... It, getting into the next couple points that we'll be looking at. But as you look at verse 3 specifically, what is this kind of man that he's just described in a very negative light? It's the kind of person who advocates a different teaching, a different teaching than Jesus. Now, they may try to, they may kind of bring in some of the teaching that Jesus has taught just to make it sound like, oh, well, of course, I'm one of you. And that is a part of the deception. That's a part of the subtlety. Hey, I'm one of you. I believe in, the, in these words over here. But then he comes over and starts saying something that, that, that just kind of goes against the grain of the rest of Scripture. This is exactly what the devil did in, in the wilderness with Jesus in Matthew chapter 4. He quoted Scripture verbatim to try and lead Jesus to, to a, a bad conclusion, the wrong conclusion, and to get him to sin. And it's the same way with these kinds of people. Man or woman, we, we must strive for sound words. And sometimes people don't like using the, you know, the, the phrase sound or unsound words, sound or unsound doctrine. It, I think that's silly because these are the words that Paul uses. And sometimes I, I've even heard brethren try to limit this, this notion of sound words to say, well, this, this only has to do with a few things that you find in 1 Timothy. No, we are talking about the teaching of Christ, and you don't get to limit that. It is the teaching of Christ across the board. 
And so we are going to keep with that teaching and not allow someone to come in and say things like, well, that, you know, I understand that that's what it says over here, but that's just not my doctrine. Or that's not my church's doctrine. I've even heard people say from time to time, well, that's, that's just COC doctrine. And that is a, this, this is a grave misunderstanding that some brethren, brethren have. They use, you know, Church of Christ as a, really as a denominational label. That's just Church of Christ. That's COC doctrine. Let me, just, let me just make this very clear. There is no such thing as COC doctrine. There is only Christ and him crucified. That's it. And so no one can come and say, well, that's just COC doctrine. I, I only, I, I, this is not my doctrine. No, we are going to keep with what Christ has said. His words and them alone. And, and, and that's what we're going to push and advocate. And everything else we're going to rebuke. Everything else we're going to put away. Everything else we're going to put down. You don't get to have your own doctrine. Lakeside has no personal doctrine or no personal creed that, that we get to have. And maybe, you know, Southside down the road or, or you know, maybe a, a sound church, you know, in another state. They don't, they get to have their own creed. That's not how this works. There's one doctrine and it's Christ's. And so there, we need to push for this. It is, it is these words that we are going by. And so all that being said, I think this point is pretty obvious, that you can tell a false teacher, you can tell a wolf in sheep's clothing by their words. Even though it may be veiled, we can tell when we come to Scripture. But beyond that, sometimes it's not just the words that are condemning, it's their actions. And this, I think, is very intriguing because, sadly, I've had conversations with brethren where, where people will say, or they, they at least reveal that they think, you know, you can't discipline someone, you can't correct someone unless they outright say something just heretical, undoctrinal. Unless they just say something that's off the walls, that Jesus isn't God. That's the only time you can really correct someone. That's the only time you can really discipline someone. That's just simply not true. That's a grave misunderstanding of our responsibilities as New Testament Christians. As, 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 as people, a part of the Lord's church, uh, as a part of the Lord's church, remember, these are wolves in sheep's clothing, but a wolf isn't a wolf just because it howls. You know what else it can do? It can do a lot of damage physically. It's not just in their bark. It's not just in its growl. It's in its motives and its actions. And so you also spot wolves by their predatory impact. Come over to Romans chapter 16. Romans chapter 16, beginning in verse 17. Romans 16 and verse 17, it says, Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned, and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites, and by their smooth and flattering speech they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. And so here we come to even more very severe language from, from the apostles, from Paul. And he says, These kinds of men... You need to root out. And, and not only that, you avoid them. You keep your eye on them and you note that kind of a person and you avoid them. Sometimes I think people would hear these kinds of words and think, well, this is just not Christian love here. That we're supposed to avoid someone? Again, I think it's a grave misunderstanding of, of what love looks like, of what God's love is. But, but, but... When, when we start to look at passages like this and think, I, I don't know about that. There's a problem there. We've got to be careful because we may have been impacted by some false teaching ourselves if we start thinking as we look at Scripture, I, I, I don't know if I can go along with that. Turn over to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. As we look at the kind of actions of these kinds of people. Titus chapter 3 in verse 9. 
It says, but avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law for they are unprofitable and, and worthless. Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. It doesn't necessarily say anything about certain words that he's using. It just says it's a factious man. That can be a man that's using his words to be factious or it can be a man who's not using words but just, just some kind of manipulation. His actions, his deeds. And, and, you know, because he, maybe because he's not saying something, people would look at this and say, well, you can't really say that he's a factious man. You can't really say that, that this person is, is, is uh, you know, advocating another doctrine that is not Christ because he hasn't really said anything. But what is he doing? Think about it like this. You're in a courtroom and, and you're on the jury and the, the defendant pleads not guilty. Now, as he does that, he never confesses to anything, but the evidence is heavily condemning. There are videos of him committing the act, and there, there's, there's, there's clear receipts and clear uh, evidence all just piling on itself saying this man is guilty. But he never confessed it, though. Now, could the judge and jury not convict him because, well... He never, he never said that he was wrong here. He never said that he was guilty. He keeps saying he's not guilty, so I guess we can't convict the man. How many times do people get harsher sentences because they pleaded not guilty when they clearly were? That's not how the real world works. And frankly, that's not how God's uh, people should work either. And so, though one may not admit it using words or verbally, actions can be just as condemning. And so we move on to the third uh, thing here that, that identifies false teachers, and that is in their behaviors. I've kind of broken this up because I do think there's a difference here between actions and behaviors. This is separate from actions because sometimes even the actions aren't as loud. They can be very subtle. An identifier could very simply be in how they approach sound words, as we were talking about in 1 Timothy chapter 6. How do they deal with how do they handle the word of God? And that is a very, very big identifier that we need to be able to recognize. Over in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 13. It says, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. So even here, Paul is making it clear. Hey, they may be acting one way, they may be speaking one way, but God is going to judge them according to their respective deeds. Though you may not be able to see it, we may not be able to see it, God does. And so God knows. And so we need to be, at the very least, looking to make sure that people aren't constantly, what would this look like in it today? You know, pushing against the boundaries that God has set up. People that are constantly looking for compromises. Uh, another way that we can uh, identify this, over in Jude, Jude in verse 3. Jude verse 3. It says, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed 
those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. And so in these two verses here, what we find is a big red flag from the first century to today. What is that red flag? If a man has to always be just as secretive. You know, these people are creeping in unnoticed. They're trying to be secretive. They're trying not to be noticed. If someone always has to be secretive in their conversations about the Bible or in the church, that's a red flag. That sounds like someone that Jude is, is condemning and really warning about. Someone who is coming in just like, well, don't let anybody else hear this, but I'll tell you what, I think differently about this. And, and not only that, but turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Again, when, we, when you hear people try to excuse or reason away these kinds of behaviors, think about this, this, this verse here. It says in verse 2 of 2 Timothy chapter 3, For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these. So once more, that very strong command, you avoid these kinds of men. And women. Now, let me just ask, because what would happen and what has happened in the past is when you have people like this rise up in the church, someone will look at this kind of a passage and say, well, you know what? They don't really fit this description. You know, I, I agree. She or, or, or he is all of these things, but they're not a lover of money. And so I don't think that we can really avoid them. If someone is everything on this list minus one, does that mean that we shouldn't avoid them? Does that mean that this does not apply to us? So let's reread it again. And yes, I know that may be annoying. We're going to reread the whole list minus one. And you tell me if this, if this makes sense. For men will be lovers of self. Skip the next one. Boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these. All right. He's everything that this list describes, except he's not a lover of money. We can't avoid him. <laughs> Come on. We're, we're better than that. We're smarter than that. And God expects us to appreciate and approach his word respectfully. And I would say I think it's disrespectful when we come and be intentionally dense like that with a passage like this. And so there's another, so there are red flags that we have to, that we have to see, that we have to know. Anything a part of this list, anything in the works of the flesh that we read in Galatians. Another red flag that, that, I, that I think about automatically is someone who is constantly keeping everyone confused. You can never get their real opinion. You can never get their real belief on a certain matter. And, and I, there, I think there are preachers out there that are kind of like this. They keep everyone confused, or you can never tell where he stands on a certain subject. Because even when he's pressed, he just kind of dodges, or, or he kind of talks about something else. He never lets people know. That's another red flag. From a preacher to anyone else. If you're a Christian, that should not sound like us. We need to be people, when, when we're asked a question, we need to be given defense for the hope that is in us. 
not someone who, when we're asked a question, oh, you know, let's, maybe let's talk about that another time. Let's talk about this. Let's talk about that. And so how do we identify false teachers? We identify them by their words, by their actions, by their behaviors. And again, this is commanded. Now, with all that being said, I want to go back and look at those excuses. And they really are nothing more than excuses that we started with. How people will sometimes say, well, you, we don't want to start judging. How some of the people will say, well, they've got a soul too. When it comes to these kinds of individuals, are we allowed to excuse this kind of behavior? And so, you know, from the beginning we, where we started, you know, we, we don't want to judge anybody's heart. We can't know anybody's heart. We don't know their motives. So maybe let's give them a little bit more time. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7 and verses 15 through 20, that you will know them by their fruits. And we are to judge by their fruits. So, I mean, think about it like this. If you had two trees on your property that you worked hard to upkeep every single day, one was producing delicious fruit while the other was producing fruit that, that made everybody sick and disgusted and, 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 you know, it was just rotten fruit and it was absolutely, you know, putrid, would you, I mean, you're spending money, you're spending energy and time on keeping these two trees, to, you know, to, to stay up instead of maybe cutting one down. And so finally you say, maybe I do need to uh, cut one of these two trees down. Would it be smart if you said, I, I don't really want to judge by the fruits. I want to be, I, want, I don't want to be too biased here. So let's just, let's just cut down the one with good fruits. Well, I think sometimes people act like that and they don't realize they're being biased, but we'll get to that more in just a moment. But would you come to these two trees and say, delicious, healthy fruits and rotten fruits. I don't want to judge by fruit here. No, no. Jesus says that we need to be people who can do this. Otherwise, if we're not doing this, we're going to be accepting rotten fruit. We're going to be accepting things that make us sick. And what that means, as you kind of get to the end of the illustration, it's, it's ingesting rotten, unsound doctrine. It's ingesting or accepting rotten or unsound behavior. And so when we excuse false teachers... And, and excuse the words that they have been that speaking. Instead of refuting it, rebuking it, when we don't rebuke their actions or behaviors, when we just let it go because we're trying to reason away what they've been doing, what we're doing is accepting it. We have to understand that. We are. And I don't want to be, I don't want to be guilty of that. Not only that, but again, just going down the line, when you look at someone who may say, we don't want to judge people now. We got to be careful about this. Was this a recommendation from Jesus? In John chapter 7 and verse 24, what does he say? But you judge with righteous judgment. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Let's just turn there very quickly. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 12. At the very end of this chapter where he's been talking about a man who is sexually immoral. And ultimately, he's just an unrepentant person. He is continuing in sin instead of you know, repenting of it and getting rid of it in his life. And yet, he's still among the people of God. And the people of God are kind of just accepting that. And they're boasting about accepting it. But how does he end after, all, uh, we could read the whole chapter, but specifically in verse 12. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. And so someone may say, well, that just seems kind of judgy and I don't want to be that kind of person. God says that we need to be able to judge among ourselves. We need to be able to have righteous judgment, righteous discernment. When we make excuses for others, we are really just trying to excuse ourselves from the responsibility that we've been given by the divine, by our creator. 
So someone may use that excuse and say, well, you know, I know this looks bad, but they haven't said anything expressly. They haven't said anything outright. So I don't think that we can say that they're a false teacher. Come back to that courtroom illustration with me for a moment. If, if these people decided to let that man go, though he was clearly guilty, because he never said anything, he never confessed, he never said, I am guilty, and they say, you know what, let's just let him go. Uh, let's be compassionate here. Let's, let's, we don't, we don't want to be a judging kind of people. What they're doing would be letting a guilty man walk free to do more damage. What if it was a man that killed a mother and a wife? You think about all the damage that does on that family. And yet you hear a jury in that kind of a case say, hey, we... We, we want to be compassionate here. We want to think about individuals. We, don't want, we, we, want to try to, we want to try to be as compassionate and loving as possible. And so we're going to let this man. What about that family who's lost everything? The, the guilty man, the man who is clearly condemned, the man who is clearly guilty, he gets to walk away free because we're going to be loving and compassionate towards him. But you know what? What about that family? What? Nothing we can do. There was something you could do, and you didn't. That, we would look at that jury and we would say, you're a bunch of cowards. How dare you? How unloving could that be? Ultimately, when we do this in the church, it's a cop-out. It's because we're unwilling or scared to go forward with God's discipline on these kinds of matters. And I think it comes back to that one of the main excuses. They've got a soul too. So does the rest of the sheep. I understand everybody's got a soul just like you and me, but I have got to look out for the souls. I have got to be looking out for the flock that are really a part of God's flock, not the ones who are acting like it. And so are we trying to excuse ourselves from responsibility? Again, there are many excuses we could make, but think for a moment and ask, are there any false teachers in the Bible who God ever excused? I'm not saying people who decided, I need to make things right, I'm going to repent and confess, and I want to be right with you again, and God forgives them. I'm not talking about that. What about the men who decide that they're going to go against God's commandments completely, and they're going to hurt God's people completely? Does God excuse that ever with any of the things that we have up on the screen here? Turn over to Jude again. Jude in verse 11. He brings up three individuals here. Jude in verse 11. We already read verses 3 and 4 as it talks about these kinds of men that he says are whose condemnation has been written about long ago. But in Jude 11, Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These were all false prophets. They were all false teachers. Now, think about this for a moment. We won't look at Cain, but let's start with Balaam, as you find his story in Numbers chapter 22. You might look at that story and realize he never did curse God's people. And, and, and doesn't that just connect with what the scriptures say, that you will not curse what God has not. You will bless what God has blessed. And Balaam never does curse the people. In fact, he blesses them. As, as he gets to Balak, the king of, of the Midianites at that time, who's trying to get Balaam to curse Israel, all he does is bless him on several occasions. Throughout Numbers chapter 22 through 24. And so over and over again, it goes against what Balak wanted him to do all along. But... Just because he never cursed them verbally, what did he do? As we learn later on, in the, especially the New Testament, 2 Peter, Jude, Revelation chapter 2, what we find is he led Balak, he instructed Balak on how to get Israel to curse themselves. He instructed Balak on how Israel would sin on their own. 
And so we might look at someone like Balaam. Would this excuse work for Balaam if someone said, but he never did curse God's people? He never did outright do that. But what did he do? So I don't think that excuse would work. He caused division and disruption in God's people without ever verbally cursing them. And what happens? He is destroyed by God for it. Did God excuse it? He dies in Numbers chapter 31. And you see that end. Think about Korah in Numbers chapter 16. Here is a man who is not just an outsider. He is a part of Israel. And in fact, he is one of, he is one of the Levites. Someone who has a very close interaction in, in the worship, in the tabernacle, and with the, the priests. And he's able to help out with that. But he comes and says, you've gone too far. Everyone in Israel is holy. And he kind of wants to take the priesthood for himself. And we know how the story ends. God swallows him up with the earth. Could we come to a man like Korah and, and the, his followers, Dathan and Abiram, could we say, well, he's just eccentric. He's, he just says those kinds of things all the time. Or, you know, he kind of goes around and, and, and he sows discord among people. He, that's just what he does every now and then. Did God excuse it? Swallowed him whole. And those who are with him. And frankly, that's another thing that I think we, we kind of forget. What about those who listen to Korah? It's not just Dathan and Abiram and the 250 that were with him that very day. But when you keep going in the story, the very next day, everyone who went along with Korah's little stunt, his rebellion, well, they were considered just as much rebels. And so it's not just Korah who was destroyed for this, but the very next day when they decided they're going to follow in his footsteps, they were destroyed for it with the plague. And who is it that has to save them? The very ones that they were rebelling against. And so the final passage I want to look at, 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Beginning in verse 3. It says, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to save their ears, uh, have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfilling your ministry. You know how these individuals in Korah's rebellion died the very next day. Hey, they weren't super associated with Korah. You know why they were destroyed? Because they supported the false teacher. And what God makes clear from the Old Testament to the New Testament is that if we support that kind of behavior, those kinds of words, those kinds of actions, the condemnation will fall on me as well. And so if, if, if I'm allowing something to go unchecked, what am I doing? I'm not supporting the sound words. If I am not disciplining where I should, I'm not supporting God's people. If I am not actively preaching against it publicly and, and privately and clearly, whether you're the evangelist or not. What are we doing? We're supporting false words, false teaching. We're defending the wolves. And God says, you're going to be put out, put down just like the rest of them. And so have I been defending the wolves or have I been spending my time defending the sheep? Those who are Christians, we are all a part of God's flock. And we are required, we're commanded, and we have the privilege to protect one another. This is a family. This is a unit. And we have an obligation to protect one another. Are we doing that? Or are we defending the wolves? Maybe I have been doing that and I'm a Christian. I need to correct myself. What God says is you have an advocate in heaven. You can make your life right this very morning.
You don't have to leave this building with any doubts in your mind of your relationship with God if you're not a Christian. You are in the same camp as the wolves. As we end every single invitation, unless you make yourself a part of the flock, what that inevitably means is you're outside of it. And don't you want to be a part of that flock that has that one true good shepherd that will lead us to where we need to be? Do you want that hope in heaven with God, with the one good shepherd? If you do, you can make your life right this morning by being converted to Christ. That means doing everything that he says you need to do, being faithful in it, being loyal to the king, repenting of everything he says that you need to do away with and make a confession based on that belief and to be baptized into his death to rise in newness of life, put to death all of the things that maybe you've been living in and all the sins that you have been living in and you can have that good shepherd leading you to heaven. If you're subject to the invitation of Christ by any means, please come forward as we stand.